Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Podcast number two after the name change. Uh, the music. The music. Lots of controversy about the music. You guys don't come here for the music, do you? I don't know what's going to happen to the music, but uh, all I can say is for the moment, get used to it, and uh, we'll see what happens in the future. Where are we here? Just a little housekeeping. Just did my events with Eric Weinstein in Detroit and Milwaukee, and unfortunately had to cancel the event in Chicago. Apologies for that. We were at the mercy of the polar vortex. It was going to be colder than on the summit of Mount Everest, I believe, with wind chill. So Live Nation pulled the plug on that out of concern for everybody's safety. So we will eventually reschedule, and everyone should have been smoothly refunded, and we will be back. Okay. Upcoming events, I've got Boston, D.C., and New York. I'm actually going to bring Eric with me to Boston and D.C. Uh, we had more to talk about. So um, it will be me and Eric Weinstein in Boston and D.C. In New York, uh, as you know, it will be Daniel Kahneman. And I believe there are still tickets left for that. I'm sure that will sell out. So if you're in New York on March 1st and you want to see me talk to Danny Kahneman, you can find tickets through my website at samharris.org forward slash events. And Boston and D.C. are the nights before that. And uh, that's all that's on the calendar at the moment. I, I have not put anything else up. I'm sure something will happen, but nothing on the calendar at the moment. Okay. The Waking Up app. The feedback has been great and incredibly helpful. So please keep the reviews coming. Uh, the reviews are not the best place to report bugs, however. Please do that directly through the website at wakingup.com. Again, the app is under continuous development, and I am looking forward to making it better and better. So uh, please keep the feedback coming. We're aware of a few bugs, especially on Android, and those fixes are being pushed through. So please update the app periodically if you don't have that automatically set, and enjoy. Today I'm speaking with Jack Dorsey. Jack is the CEO of Twitter and Square. We don't spend a lot of time talking about Square. We get into the details of Twitter. We talk about the role that Twitter plays in journalism now, how it's different from other social media, how Jack and the rest of his team are attempting to reduce the toxicity on their platform. We talk about what makes conversation healthy, the logic by which Twitter suspends people, uh, the reality of downranking and, quote, shadow banning. I briefly make my case for banning Trump from the platform. We talk about Jack's practice of meditation. Anyway, I must say, I consider this interview a missed opportunity. We really were the casualty of timing here, more than anything else. Because we recorded this conversation a week before the Covington Catholic High School Circus, which, as you know, exemplified more or less everything that's wrong with social media at this moment, and Twitter in particular. If you recall, it really seemed in that week that Twitter accomplished something like the ruination of journalism. So that would have been great to talk about, and our silence on that topic will be ringing in your ears. So much of what we talked about with respect to Twitter's policy around 
suspending people and the politics of all that really could have been sharpened up had we had a time machine. We also had this conversation before some other interviews with Jack came out, which I've since read in Rolling Stone. And also he went on Joe Rogan's podcast in the interim. And Joe, as you know, streams everything live. So um, I've seen the aftermath of all that. And Joe reaped a whirlwind of criticism for not having pushed Jack hard enough. I think he's going to have Jack back on his podcast. I'm actually going to be on Joe's podcast later in the week, and I'm sure we'll talk about all this. But all of that notwithstanding, I really enjoyed talking to Jack. One thing I want to make clear, because I saw some of the pain that Joe was getting from his audience, many people were alleging that Joe must have agreed not to push Jack on certain points. Uh, I can't speak for Joe, but I, I must say, Jack had no restrictions at all on this conversation. He was eager to talk about anything I wanted to raise. There were no edits to it. He didn't request any. So he's totally willing to have a conversation about where Twitter has been and where it's going. You'll hear that he is quite good at pirouetting around any concern a person raises. You'll certainly witness that in this conversation, and, and it was there to be seen in Joe's and in all these subsequent interviews that I've seen. You know, he really does offer a more or less a full mea culpa on many of these points. You talk about how toxic Twitter is, and he fully acknowledges it. You talk about how inscrutable the policy is around banning and how it lacks transparency, and he fully owns that. And so there's really, there's not that much to get from him on those points apart from his stated commitment to fixing all of these problems that he acknowledges. So, you know, I don't know what Joe's going to get out of him on a second pass, but given the time I had this conversation with Jack, I really can't express too much regret, but I, just in light of what's happened in the last few weeks, I would certainly want to turn down the screws a little bit on a few of these points. That said, I really enjoyed the conversation with Jack, and I hope you do too. And now I bring you Jack Dorsey. I'm here with Jack Dorsey. Jack, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting conversation for me to approach because I think we're going to talk about some things that I'm a little concerned you don't want to talk about, and I'll just going to forge ahead. But and if, I want if, to talk if, about if, everything. Okay. But and then I think we'll get into things that um, areas of mutual interest that, that I think we'll both be very happy to talk about. So let's start with the, the weird stuff and just how difficult your job is, or at least how difficult your job appears to me to be. Obviously, you have two jobs. You've got this dual CEO role with, with Square and Twitter. I don't know very much about Square. I mean, perhaps you can just you can introduce how you think of, of your job there, but I'm not, we're going to talk about Twitter almost exclusively. So I, just, I guess to start, how do you think of your career at this point, and how, how are you managing, I, I'm sure this is a question you've gotten a lot, but how are you managing this dual CEO life? A lot of it is, um, is experimenting and learning. All the experiences that I've had at, at both companies have, have definitely formulated how I, I act every day. And I, it's pushed me to focus first on my health. And uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, mental health and just um, how I can uh, 
how it can be aware and productive and observant throughout the day. A big part of that for me has been meditation, which I'm, I would hope to talk to you. Yeah, that, that's what I'm, ho- that's what I'm looking point, forward to talking about. Point. Yeah. So we'll save that for the end, something yeah. to look forward to. Yeah. Um, but um, First the pain, then the meditation. <laughs> first the pain and observing the pain. But a lot of it has just been, has been doing it. And I, today I, I, I don't really segment the, the parts of my day. It's, it's one job. This is, this is my life. And I know that the companies will benefit and the, and the people that we serve will benefit from me focusing on consistent self-improvement. Mm. And that starts with, that starts with how I think about things. And that's, it starts with like the mindset I bring to my work. And that's certainly evolved over the past, Twitter will be 13 years in March, thinking about right. skipping the 13th year, like they skip uh-huh. you know, 13 floors and buildings, but it'll be 13 years in, in March and, and Square will be 10 years old uh, this February. But uh, a, a lot of the, the balance between the two is possible, one, because of the team I've been fortunate enough to assemble, and it took some iterations. Hmm. But also um, how similar they are in different mediums. Twitter is is obviously focused on communication, and our purpose is serving a public conversation. I, we think we're very unique in that regard, and there's a lot of dynamics that are quite powerful, and a lot of dynamics that can be taken advantage of, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Square, on the other hand, is around economic empowerment. And one of the things that we saw early on in 2009 was that people in this country, and certainly this is reflective of the rest of the world, were being left out of the economy because they're being left with access to the slower mediums, like paper cash, while the world was moving on to more digital. And uh, we are serving an underserved audience. We started with sellers. We're now moving to individuals. Um, we have this app called the Cash App, which we have significant percentages of the people using it who were their only bank account. Um, right. And it's been a really powerful um, example of utilizing technology to provide access to people. Uh, and it's needed in so many ways in how we organize our financial lives um, and how people make a living. And, you know, as, as you've talked about on some of your podcasts, these systems have been under a lot of central control in the past. And a lot of that centralized control has removed access from people or not even created the potential to do so. So one of the f- things we found in Square in the early days is the only way you could start accepting credit cards was if you had a good credit score. And a lot of entrepreneurs who are just getting started, they don't have a good credit score. I didn't have a good credit score when we started Square. I was massively in debt to credit cards, actually. So by shifting that, using better technology, making it more inclusive, we were able to serve a lot more people that the industry just wasn't able to. So you've got these two massive companies, which at least from the the public-facing view seem diametrically opposed in in the level of controversy they 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 bring to the world and to your life presumably <clears throat> I mean, square is a it seems like a very straightforward successful noble pursuit which about which i can't imagine there's a lot of controversy i'm, I'm sure there's some that that i haven't noticed but it must be nothing like what you're dealing with with twitter how are you 
triaging the needs of a a big company that is just functioning like a normal big company and twitter which is something which you know on any given day can be just fr- you know front page news everywhere given how given the the sense of either how it's helping the world i mean the, the thing that's amazing about twitter is that it's clear it's enabling you know, revolutions that we might want to support right or the empowerment of dissidents and I mean, there's just this one you know saudi teenager uh, who was you know tweeting from a, a hotel room in the Bangkok airport that her she was worried that her her parents would kill her and I don't think it's too much to say that Twitter may have saved her life in that case I'm sure there are many other cases like this where you know, she got she was granted asylum in, in Canada and so and these these stories become front page news and then the antithetical story becomes front page news so we know that you know ISIS recruits terrorists on Twitter or their fears that misinformation spread there undermines democracy. And we'll get to Trump. But how do you deal with being a normal CEO and being a CEO in this other channel, which is anything but normal? Well, both companies and both spaces that they create in have their own share of controversy. But I find that in the financial realm, it's a lot more private. Mm. Whereas with communication, it has to be open. And I would prefer them both to be out in the open. I would prefer to work more in public. I'm fascinated by this idea of of being able to to work in public, make decisions in public, make mistakes in public. And I get there because of my childhood. I was I was a huge fan of punk rock back in the day and then that transitioned to hip hop and that led me to a lot of open source where people would just get up on stage and do their thing and they were terrible and you saw them a month later and they were a little bit better and then a month later they're a little bit better and we see the same thing with open source which led me to technology ultimately but so I I approach it with with that understanding of that you know we're not here just to make one single statement that stands the test of time that our medium at Twitter is conversation and conversation evolves and Ideally, it evolves in a way that uh, we all learn from it. There's not a lot of people in the world today that would walk away from Twitter saying, oh, I, I learned something, but that would be my goal. Mm. And we need to figure out what element of the service and what element of the product we need to bolster or increase or, or change in order to do that. So I guess in my role of CEO of Twitter, it's, how do I lead this company in the open, realizing that we're going to take a lot of bruises along the way, but in the long term, what we get out of that ideally is is earning some trust. Mm-hmm. And we're not there yet, but that's the intention. Well, on the, on the topic of um, I learned something, actually, that's, this is one of my, this is actually the only idea that I've ever had for improving Twitter which is to have a, in addition to a, a like button, this changed my mind button, or I learned something mm-hmm. button, so, mm-hmm. that, so that you can track. I mean, one, it would just kind of instantiate a new norm where people tweeting would aspire to have that effect on people. Like, like this is it's actually about dialogue. It's about debate. So I give that to you. You can do with what... Actually, really? I had one other recommendation to you, <laughs> to, to deplatform the president of the United States, which I noticed you haven't <laughs> taken me up on. 
one of the one of the ideas we we had uh, way back in the day um, there was instead of a we had a the the button was actually called favorite before it was called like mm-hmm. we transitioned to like I, I think at one of our most reactive phases within the company we were drafting from a known behavior that you saw on Facebook and Instagram and whatnot but we were going to we, there was a proposal to change it to thanks which I like a lot. I, I think mm. it kind of gets at some of the, the things you're trying to express to the degree to which you're influencing someone's thinking or you're changing someone's mind uh, is another level. But to build a service that people can express gratitude for things they find valuable more directly instead of the emptiness of a like button is something that we are thinking a lot about right now. Right. The okay. incentives are where we are in the conversation. We realize that what we need to do is not going to be done by changing policy. What we need to do is look fundamentally at the mechanics of the service mm. that we haven't looked at in 12 years. The, the fact that we have one action to follow and it's following accounts. And following accounts in the example of Brexit, for example, if you followed a bunch of accounts that were spouting off reasons to, to leave, that's all you get. You have right. no other ability to see another perspective of the conversation unless you did the work to follow the account of someone who was opposed to that view. Whereas we do have the infrastructure in the service right now in the form of search and trends. And if you were to follow the vote leave trend, 95% of the conversation would be reasons to leave, but 5% would be some considerations to make to stay. Mm-hmm. But we don't make it easy for anyone to do that, and therefore no one does it. So these are exactly the things we're looking at in terms of, like, is like really the thing that helps contribution back to the global conversation? My own personal view is that it doesn't. My own personal view is it's empty, and it's a lot more destructive than, than what we considered it to be by well, you know, everyone knows how to take this action, so we should put it on our, our service as well. As you were talking, it <clears throat> made me think you could have a kind of dashboard that showed people how siloed they were in terms of, mm-hmm. kind of partisan information. Like, if, like if, if people may not know that they're getting only one side of a story. Well, we, we actually saw that in the 2016 elections. We did some research of the connections. We, we've been spending a lot more time not looking at the content that people are saying, but the behaviors and the connections between accounts and uh, interactions and replies. And one of the things that was, that was very evident during the lead up to the election was the, um, just looking at our journalist constituency, which was one of the most important, is one of the most important constituencies on Twitter to my mind. Yeah. The amount of journalists on the left who were following folks on the right end of the spectrum was very, very small. The amount of journalists on the right end of the spectrum following folks on the left was extremely high. That's interesting. It was, even it was just inter- that factoid is, is yeah. worth getting out there. Yeah. There's, a, there's a good graphic that uh, a, an MIT lab um, called Cortico put out that illustrates this effect, and you can immediately see what happened, at least in the media sphere, in terms of these these uh, filter bubbles and echo chambers that we tend to create. But that is something that I, I do 
take a lot of responsibility around. We have definitely helped to create these isolated chambers of, of thought. Mm. And it's because of the mechanics of how our system works. J- just the simplest thing of emphasizing the follower account, only allowing the following of an account versus an interest, a topic, or a conversation. These are the things that don't allow any fluidity and uh, evolution. It's very, very rigid. And you mm. have to do a lot of work to get to some of the fluidity that we that we know Twitter is, but you you have to be an expert to understand that it's even possible. Right. Well, yeah, so you were talking about the different constituencies on it, and that, that's one thing that makes Twitter unique, that it, it really seems like the platform where real journalists and real intellectuals and newsmakers, they're relying on it for conversation. I mean, they're relying on both as a kind of a real-time response to things that are happening in the world and as a way of just divulging things that are happening in the world and a way of sharing their opinions. And in that sense, it seems completely unlike every other social media platform to me. And so I have this I have this love-hate relationship, as many people do with Twitter. I have a, just a hate-hate relationship with all the other social media platforms. I mean, I just, I've never been tempted to use them. Well, at least we're halfway there. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> But Twitter, you know, I, I keep a step away from it. And we can talk about just how you, even how you relate to Twitter as, you know, psychologically. But the idea of not being on it just seems like a non-starter now because it is, it's almost like a public utility. It really is just the, it is the one place where you can, you are, you're guaranteed to see a response to news events that you have curated and it can be as good, really, or as informative as you've curated it. What do you think accounts for the adoption of Twitter by those groups? And I mean, it's just integrated into, like, like even television news has to use Twitter to sort of leverage the conversation about what they're putting out. And they don't, they don't do that with Instagram or, or uh, Facebook. Is it, is it just the short form? What, what made Twitter so <clears throat> sticky in the beginning? Was it the 140 characters? I think it's a few things. I, I think I, I don't believe we're a social network. Social things happen on us, but my definition of a social network would be one that is dependent upon the people that you know, you know, the, the graph of your past or your, your current career or your future aspirations in terms of who you want to work with or who you want to be with or whatnot. And mm-hmm. we don't benefit from the address book in your phone. We benefit from more of an interest network. We benefit because you're interested in something. And because of that, there's no deliberate join or leave of any one particular community. Simply talking about a topic puts you in it. Mm. And the whole dynamic of Twitter enables that. And that's extremely powerful, but it's also extremely complex for people. And I think one of the reasons why journalists took to it so quickly is because it serves as this, it's certainly a, a marketplace of ideas. It certainly has, you know, people have similar expectations as they would a public square um, where ideas are discussed and evolved and debated. So it takes on a lot of characteristics of that because of the, the dynamic of it, because of the real-time nature, because of the public nature. But I think it serves as an as this um, in between the articles function, and you know we had journalists write article 
broadcast it with Twitter and then get into conversation to get more perspectives, get different ideas, make corrections, make clarifications. But then we also noticed something really interesting is that it really unlocked the journalists from their publication. So I've watched in the, in the, in the nearly 13 years, journalists that I follow go from a smaller blog to a BuzzFeed to a New York Times to another institution. And it became interesting to just follow them as a person rather than than the publication that they work for. Mm -hmm. And I I think that felt very freeing to a number of the journalists I've talked to about it. It it wasn't about the fact that I'm at the New York Times, it was the fact that I'm doing great investigative journalism and I have a direct connection with my readers and uh, my sources and, and, and maybe even sources that I didn't know were going to be sources. Um, yeah. because of the openness, because of the public nature of the service. So I think that was a big part. The constraint has had other ramifications. We were really big with comedians. That was a, mm-hmm. that was a big wave, I think, because of the rhythmic nature of the constraint. Mm-hmm. Really big with the hip-hop community for the exact same re- reasons. We don't see as many poets this day and age, but it's anyone with like a poetic poets. It would have been great for poets. But it also, to the negative, created more of a headline, outrage, Mm -hmm. fast take kind of approach and culture. And the, you know, expansion to 280 has helped with that. We haven't seen a decrease or, or we haven't seen an increase in when you send an organic tweet out just as a broadcast people typically don't go over the 140 character original constraint, Mm -hmm. but when they reply to someone else, they do. And that's where the 280 really matters is because it allows for a little bit more nuance. And those are the sorts of things we're, we're looking at, but I, the, the journalists, I I believe were, were using it as a, as a way to exist in between their, their work and also to have conversations with their peers about what's interesting. And there's some positives and negatives to that. What, what's the philosophy around not letting people edit tweets? So um, now that I have you here, I'm just going to just download all my customer service complaints. When I, when I type a typo and discover it six hours later, why can't I correct that typo? It's going to sound like a really boring answer, but I'm going to give you the context for it. So we were born um, on SMS. We were born on text messaging. Mm-hmm. And you could view Twitter as, what if you could text with the world? What if you could have a text conversation with the entire world mm. with a text you can't correct once it's sent it's sent it's gone and you build on top of it you evolve it you carry on the conversation we uh obviously were not limited by that but we built our system so that when you send a tweet it immediately starts fanning it out so as soon as you send that a lot of the potential damage is done so for us to introduce that edit, and this, these are things that we're looking at. These are things that we're, we're considering and whatnot. But for us to introduce edit for a common use case of, I made a mistake, I need to fix a link because I sent out the wrong one, it adds a delay into the system. And that's good in some context. For a lot of the things that, that you tweet about, it's, it's probably what you want. But, you know, there's, there's all these Twitters. There's, you know... Your Twitter, and which you've built by following who you follow, there's politics Twitter, which is a very, very different experience this day and age. Mm. There's NBA Twitter, which is super exciting, but very real time. 
and people use it while they're watching the game and it becomes the roar of the crowd. So even a 30 second delay in a tweet is, is meaningful. Mm-hmm. So that's a consideration we need to make. We need to make another consideration for another use case people want in that you might tweet something, you want to go back to it a week later and correct something. But meanwhile, people have retweeted it. And it might be a point of view that you've taken on and they've retweeted that point of view. And then you decide to do something a little bit devious and you change the point of view. So they have then tweeted something that you've completely changed the message upon. Mm -hmm. So that requires a change log or some notification that this tweet has changed substantially and he might be saying something that you don't agree with anymore. Right. So it's easy to see how people could game that. You could have somebody who tweets something very sticky and innocuous uh, and then they flip it to, you know, the, the, yep. the next uh, yep. neo-Nazi meme that they, yes. they want spread. Yeah, exactly. And and then the final use case we're looking at is clarifications. And and that is, you know, this this current moment where people are digging up tweets from 10 years ago or five years ago and um, canceling the original tweeter and, mm-hmm. you know, canceling their career or canceling various aspects of their life. And we don't offer a ability for people to go back and say, well, let me clarify what I meant. And we do believe that's important and we do believe we can help address it, but it just takes some work. But the reason why it's taken us so long is because the majority of our systems are built in this real-time mindset with a real-time fan out. And we just want to be very deliberate about how we're solving these use cases and not just stop it. We need an edit button. Like, mm. What are people actually trying to do? And let's solve that problem. Okay, so let, let's push into some of the areas of controversy here because you know, it seems to me you have an extremely hard job and, and I, so it's hard to imagine how you can actually get it right, actually do it so well that you won't continuously have this ambient level of criticism about how you're doing it. So, and the job is to figure out how to get a handle on the the toxicity on your platform. So, and it, it, this has so many forms, one could scarcely list them all, but from, you know, trolling to harassing to conspiracy theories and misinformation and lies to doxing to what is generally called hate speech, but it is speech that is in the political context protected by the First Amendment, at least in the, in the United States, but you have a global platform subject to different laws in different countries. How are you trying to deal with this problem? And, and I mean, you can feel free to grab any specific strand yeah. of that. I'll, I'll start by saying that um, the problem is more amplified in particular parts of Twitter. It, it is definitely the case that it is rampant in politics Twitter. And it it comes with a lot of a lot of patterns which we're now starting to see be more consistent. So first and foremost, just to take it up a few notches, we, we, asked, we were asked a question some time ago, uh, what if you could measure the health of conversation? Could you measure the health of conversation mm. in the same way that you can measure the health of you know, the human body? And we thought that was a very intriguing question because we've all had conversations where we felt it to be just completely toxic. And the result of that is ideally we walk away from it. And we've also had conversations that feel empowering that we learn something from and we want to stay in it. 
And we actually see this digitally as well. We see people walk away from conversations on Twitter. And we see people stay in conversations and persist them on Twitter. And we can, we're, we're to the point where we can, we can actually see it in our numbers and measure it. Mm. So we went a little bit deeper with that. And, um, and this must be algorithmic, right? We're not talking about individuals tracking. It's not algorithmic, but then checked by, by people as right. well, just to verify like the, our models are, are working. We took it a step further, and um, so so what is what is health? Health is has indicators. Like your your body has an indicator of health, which is your temperature, and um, your your temperature indicates whether your system more or less is in balance. If it's above ninety point six, then something is wrong, and we need to figure out what the measurement tools are to figure out what that measurement is, what that mm -hmm. metric is, which is in in this case the thermometer, and then you know we we go down the line and. As we develop solutions, we can, we can see what effect they have on it. So we've been thinking about this problem in terms of what we're calling conversational health. And we're, we're at the phase right now where we're trying to figure out the right indicators of conversational health. And mm -hmm. we have four placeholders. The first is shared attention. So what percentage of the conversation is attentive to the same thing versus uh, disparate? The second is shared reality. So this is not determining what facts are facts, but what percentage of the conversation are sharing the same facts. The third is receptivity. So this is where we measure toxicity um, and people's desire to walk away from something. And the fourth is variety of perspective. And what we want to do is, is get readings on all of these things and then understanding that we're not going to optimize for one. We, 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 we want to try to keep everything in, in balance. And by increasing one, it probably has a negative effect on another. So you could increase the variety of perspective, but decrease the shared reality in right. doing so. So step one is getting a sense of what the current state is through, through measurement. And um, a lot of that we intend to do through um, algorithms measuring how people talk. Uh, and, and then of course, humans pairing with that to make decisions around solutions. And, you know, in the same way that like you're, you might be sick and I will offer you, a, you know, this bottle of water and also offer you a glass of wine. Based on all of our experience, if you reach for the water and you drink the water, you, there's more probability that you limit the amount of time that your system is out of balance and you're, you're not healthy. If you choose the wine, you'll probably increase the time it takes. So how would we think about giving people more options to at least drive towards more conversational health? So that's the abstract level. At a tangible tactical level, we're looking at behavior. We're looking at um, how people interact with one another the network that they create and they operate on. One of the things we've noticed, if, if someone is going into your replies and slurring, slinging slurs at you or just being extremely disruptive or doxing you, there's a high probability that they're doing it to other people as well. And if we can notice that, we can predict it and we can at least add some friction into the spread of those tweets into the shared areas of the service. So. There's the Twitter that majority of people spend their time in, which is what they follow. 
And then there's these shared areas that anyone can inject themselves into, like replies, like search, and like trends. Hmm. We have a role and a responsibility, and you know, it, it, it's our job ultimately in terms of what we amplify to what level and where we ultimately put the attention in the shared areas. When you follow someone explicitly or when you follow a topic explicitly, that audience is earned and you should see every single thing that that person might spout at you. But the problems that we're seeing with harassment is I don't know this person and they're just coming at me. And they're doing so because they're gaming our system or we haven't provided enough tools to ward that off. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at behavior, we're looking at product fixes, like what if you could actually, you being a host when you tweet, what if you could actually um, have more control over the replies, whether it be who replies or you could hide a reply, not delete it from Twitter or the internet, but just hide it from your conversation. What does that do for you? What does that do for the experience? It has positives for mm -hmm. the author, but it also has negatives in that you're likely creating more of a filter bubble. And we see a lot of the power of Twitter has been speaking truth to power. So you can imagine some folks that you disagree with heavily moderating or having teams of people heavily moderating their own reply space, which takes out some of the conversation that might have been enlightening or emboldening to you. So you're, well, you're imagining there is a mute that would that works not just for the the person whose account is using the mute, but for everyone who's following that yeah. thread. Yeah, right? with the thesis being, you tweeted something, and um, you're effectively host of a conversation. And mm. should we give you more controls to curate that conversation to a degree that you want to take it? We can, if we were to do something like that, we could only do so by saying. Sam moderated this reply. Like Sam took action on this reply. It's still here. You can see it if you tap this button, but you have to do some work to get to it because he's chosen that he wants this reply space in this conversation to go in this particular direction. Right. So we, we would have to add the, the amount of transparency that we do as people take these, right. take these actions. Well, all I can say, if you give me that power, I will use it like a tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone will see how you use it. And, and, and that's, that, to me, is the, the balance, how we can solve some of the, the negatives that come from that. But those are some of the more tangible things that we're mm -hmm. looking at. But we, we ultimately believe that we need to be able to measure our success here. And I don't know of another tangible metaphor than than health. And I know it sounds a little bit abstract and weird right now, but we, in, we intend to study conversational health and understand what it means in the digital space and what it means specifically for Twitter and share all of our mm -hmm. findings. We're, we're doing this with external um, universities and labs as well. What about the variable of anonymity? Because I, I've noticed that in <clears throat> the settings, when I decided to just filter for people who had emails confirmed on the system, that cut down, and I, they could still be anonymous, I guess, or you know, on some level, I don't actually know how it works on your side, but just checking that box cut down on the lunacy and malice that was coming my way by like 95%. Yeah. So it seems to me this, this is, I, mean, I understand the arguments for anonymity in various spaces. I mean, like, you know, whistleblowers or this, this, some enabling of people who, if their identities or whereabouts were actually known, they, you know, they would be at some risk. And so they couldn't use it in quite that way. But 
it just seems that online in every forum and every comment thread, anonymity is an amplifier of craziness and division. How, how do you think about it on Twitter? Well, um, as you pointed out, there, there are some important use cases that we need to continue to pay attention to. We want to give people control. So if I choose not to sign up with an email address or a phone number, and uh, I don't want to see you know, the comments from those people because it's too easy, then we should enable people to, to filter as such. But personally, I don't believe it's the solution is just go straight to real names, real identity, because we've seen exactly the same problems on the platforms that have real name. And I, I don't think it has really solved the issue. Mm. We, we have one of the reasons, so the, the way I think about it is, is we, we don't want to incentivize anonymity. We want to incentivize pseudonymity. We want to incentivize built identity and reputation. And there are cases where we have journalists, for instance, who don't want to give us their email address or phone number because they're worried about requests from governments about those particular credentials, and we have received them. We're transparent about that. We have a transparency right. report which shows all the requests from governments that we get, but that is the reason. But I think we can, I think we can solve this problem or um, at least make some progress on it by providing more context around the accounts. So we've started to do this. One of the things that we put in the profile recently was when you joined. So you can see when the account was created, mm -hmm. which is helpful. One of the big things that we want to do now that we have you know, these, these smartphones with more biometrics in them is how do we identify all the humans on the service? If we take the opposite approach of trying to identify the bots, we're probably going to fail. But by utilizing Face ID or Touch ID or some of the biometrics, can we incentivize people to um, verify that they're actually human using these technologies, which are tried and true, and then start contextually labeling the fact that they are indeed human, they're not bots, they're not automations. Just looking for automations is an uphill battle because the sophistication of scripting has just become an order of magnitude more. People are able to script phones completely and look very, very human, mm. but we also have organizations that are paying humans to do these things as well. So we're trying to approach this with, you know, all of our policies, all of our product should go towards protecting the humans first. And in order to do that, we need to be able to identify them as such. And that's going to require some technology. It's going to require some new experiences that we're, 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 we're just now thinking about. But um, I do believe that we'll that and providing more context around the tweets, around the accounts, will at least enable people to make better decisions around what they're consuming. Well, so they're, they're the decisions that people can make for themselves to improve the health of their conversations, but then they're the decisions that you can make either algorithmically or by, you know, by fiat once it gets to the right person's brain. And it's those decisions that have a lot of people worried. And I, and I think I'm you know, I'm in touch with many, many people who are politically in the center who are quite worried about how your response to the extremes of our politics is, is making conversation very difficult. And there's a, a, a pervasive sense that the response is biased politically so that, for instance, people get suspended 
I mean, re- recently someone got suspended. Uh, it was just ironically a, a, a feminist journalist in Canada who I think her name is Megan Murphy, who is just not, you know, she's, she's a feminist, but she's not sufficiently woke apparently on the, on the transgender topic. And she, she wrote a tweet, which I believe read, men are not women, and got suspended over that tweet. But at the same moment, you, we have people like Louis Farrakhan, you know, who, could, who can tweet about Jews or, or a satanic influence or you know, something expressing that sentiment, who's in good standing. There are even terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah who have valid Twitter accounts. And yet Milo Yiannopoulos <clears throat> is knocked off for you know, whatever he said. Now, I completely understand why, if you viewed yourself as a media company on some level, I could understand why you would want the freedom to amplify certain voices or not. I mean, there, there are people who get banned from Twitter who I wouldn't want to have on my podcast. I mean, I have cho- I've chosen not to interview Milo, for instance, right? Because I think he's a, a fundamentally insincere person. He's, he's just not, he's not interesting to me as, as, a, as someone to talk to. But Twitter is, it stri- strikes most people as a very different kind of platform. It's, a, it's, a kind of, it's essentially internet infrastructure at this point. And I'm sure there are examples of people on the left being banned for their violating your terms of service. But there is a pervasive sense that this tends to run one way, and that where you have people on the right uh, or who touch some ta- some taboo that is and has encroached on our conversation on specific issues, whether it's gender or race or you know any uh, religion, any of these these hot button issues, and the response from the top at Twitter reliably lands on one side of the political divide. So there's a lot there. I I, d- I don't believe that we can afford to take a neutral stance anymore. Um, I don't believe that we should optimize for neutrality. I do believe that we should optimize for impartiality. And I, I do think mm-hmm. there's a, there, there is a difference there. To me, neutral, neutrality is a lot more passive, a lot more hands-off. And what we have seen... Well, um, let's just pause there, there for a second, because it seems to me that in thinking about how difficult this is, if you're trying to enforce some curation process, it's just very hard to see how you can ever get it right. So, the, so my question is, why not simply take refuge in something like the First Amendment and draw a very bright line around violence or the threat of violence or you know, the, in any way trying to engineer violence with speech, and everything else is okay to say? It would be passive, but it would also be a comprehensive response that has, the, the, you know, in, at least in the U.S. case, a backing of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the spirit of our, our policies and our rules are exactly that. So the enforcement of them is not always apparent. Um, and the reason why is because a lot of what we're looking at right now is behaviors in, in the background. So if you just look at one enforcement action, uh, we, we don't suspend people purely for saying one particular thing permanently. If there was a violent threat um, that was specific around a location, we absolutely would. But we, we want to make sure that, so usually there is a lead up to this, or there are other actions happening. They might be controlling multiple accounts um, and all using all those accounts to harass the same people or try to shut them down, which will end up in a permanent suspension. So it's not just the 
speech that they're saying on the surface, but also the actions that they're taking in the, in the background. And where we haven't been great is explaining that. We don't, have, we don't have an equivalent right now to kind of a case law system where we can actually show what's happening for each one of these cases. We'd like to change that. We, we would like to be a lot more transparent around the actions that we take in the enforcement. But ultimately, I don't think we can just be, um, be this neutral passive platform anymore hmm. because of the threats of violence, because of doxing, because of troll armies intending to silence someone, especially more marginalized members of society. We have to take on an approach of impartiality meaning that we need very crisp and clear rules. We need case studies and case law for how we take action on those rules and any evolutions of that we're transparent and upfront about. And we're, we're not in a great state right now, but that is, that is our focus. I do believe that a lot of people come to Twitter with the expectation of a public square and you know, freedom of expression is certainly one of those expectations. But what we're seeing is people weaponize that to shut others' right to that down. And that is what we're trying to protect ultimately. And we're, we're going to make mistakes along the way, the, the case that you brought up. I'm not sure what's behind that, but I, I certainly don't believe it was just because of that one tweet. The other You're th talking about the, the Megan Murphy, mm -hmm. men are not women tweet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that we need to have a more robust solution around is appeals which we, we just don't have a, a clear answer to right now. I, I don't believe that these, these permanent actions are ultimately us with, you know, there, there are certain exceptions, of course, but we don't have a robust appeals process to question our judgments on particular actions. And, and Is there an appeals process or, or does it just come down, you, you receive an email and it's, there's nothing there's, to do? There's a light one. It's really hard to find. It's a little bit complicated to navigate. And, um, we prioritize enforcement actions right now over the appeals. Mm. We're moving to a world where we want to be a lot more proactive about how we think about um, enforcement by actually doing the inverse. How do we promote more healthy conversation? All the conversation is still up on the platform, so less a world where we take things down, more of a world where what are we amplifying and what are we giving attention to? And it's not... I, I don't believe it'll necessarily be a question of what accounts are we giving attention to, but what conversations are we giving attention to? And that's, that's where we need to be really open because I, I would also distrust any company making decisions like that for me. So we need to make sure that as we build this into our process, our policy, and also our algorithms, that we can explain the why behind every particular action. And, and this is a, a really interesting field of research in artificial intelligence. Right now, a lot of algorithms are not being engineered in such a way that they can even explain why they made the decisions they made right. or even what criteria they used to make those decisions. And to me, that's one of the most dangerous things about the advance of AI is that they can't explain the why behind their decisions. So there's this field of research called explainability which we want to hopefully be leaders on, but we think is critical as we export more of our decisions to these algorithms internally, and also as a society, as we export more of our decisions to these, that they are able to tell us why they did the thing they want us to do. But it seems to me that there's got to be mission creep in this. As you add 
rules to cover specific cases. Like, and again, so some of the, my reading on this coughed up details, which you know, I it sounds crazy to me. So this, you know, feel free to tell me that this isn't true. If in fact it's not, but I read somewhere that it's a violation of your terms of service to quote dead name a transgender person, and dead naming is this just merely stating what their name used to be, right? So, if, so if I were to tweet. Caitlyn Jenner used to be Bruce Jenner. Is that a violation of Twitter's terms of service? Well, I don't, I don't know the exact specifics of that right. policy, but these are look these are all these are all policies that we that we write and evolve based on what we're hearing from those affected and those affected in a way that they don't feel safe to exist on the platform. But ultimately, I would say that our success in solving these problems is not going to be a policy success. We're not going to solve our issues by changing our policy. We're going to solve our issues by looking at the product itself and the incentives that the product ensures and looking at our role not necessarily as a, as a, as a publisher, as a host, I should say, of content, but how we're recommending things, where we're amplifying, where we're, de- where we're downranking content. So the state of our policies right now are evolving. I think in the past they've been fairly reactive, and I don't think they have been as cohesive as we'd like. But I, you know, I do think they've evolved to what we're seeing in terms of like what people are experiencing and and not wanting to even speak on our platform. Period. Which which we do believe we need to protect. The proliferation of cases is going to be in the end a very weak and uh, yes. position. I mean you just not you're not going to be able to navigate Policy it. Policy won't you know? solve it. Yeah. More rules will not solve it. So but so then algorithmically there are these things like I think you just mentioned downranking is so 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 what is it that you do that seeks to improve the health of a conversation is is there I mean there's a phrase shadow banning, right? Is, does shadow banning <coughs> exist? What is downranking? Are there other modes in which you can either hide or or put less emphasis on content? I mean, you said I think you said at the top that everyone who's following me should be able to see every one of my tweets. Under what conditions is that actually not happening on Twitter? No conditions. If someone follows you, you've earned that audience, and they they have access to everything that you say. What we do do is, you know, when you when you come back to Twitter and you come to the timeline. Uh, if you haven't been there in some time, we rank the timeline based on relevance, based on how you've interacted with uh, various tweets in the past or accounts in the past, and we put those at the top. Hmm. Everything is still in the timeline, but you just have to scroll more to see it. You can switch that to be completely reverse cron, which means you're doing a bunch more work. You're probably seeing a lot more repetitive tweets about the same thing, but it's all there, and we're not doing any algorithmic ranking whatsoever. So we want to provide options in that particular case. There's another area of Twitter, which are these shared spaces like replies, trends, search, where we, you know, anyone can inject themselves into your replies. I'm sure you, you've experienced I, I've this noticed. a lot. So the questions we're asking now is not around removal of the content to those replies, but how do we rank it so that um, you are having a relevant conversation? You're having, uh, you know, you're getting relevant feedback that's relevant to you. And it might be the case that we go all the way to giving you more controls over that conversation with, you know, the, um, the, the, the negatives that we have to watch out for. So 
a lot of it has to do with where we place the tweets and you know we'll we'll place the things that are more relevant on some relevance calculation which is always evolving at the top and less relevant at the bottom and some of the things that we detect from a behavioral standpoint like if we have someone who's going to a bunch of people's replies saying similar things they will be put at the bottom of that reply field and they will also be put behind an interstitial and the experience that you'll have or anyone viewing your replies will say there's there's more replies you have to hit show more replies to see them and you can see them right. all so that's our current solution and that will evolve but you know there's there's a lot there that we could we could uh we could be better about okay so um let's talk about the orange elephant in the room i think our first interaction on on twitter I think so so i dm'd you over something there was a some pleasant exchange of a hundred or so characters. And then I immediately said, okay, you got to knock this guy off Twitter. It just seems to me that whatever criteria you use to judge whether somebody is a bad actor on your platform, Trump has violated those same criteria in spades. So, you know, whether it's, we're talking about the president of the United States who calls out private individuals for abuse, knowing that his mob is going to target them. He's called out individual businesses. This is somebody who could actually start a war by w- some of his ejaculations on Twitter, or at least that doesn't seem like a completely lunatic fear to, to form. And I mean, to step back to the, to the one could al- almost, I think, argue that he wouldn't be president, but for the fact that he was able to use Twitter in this way. I mean, this is, this is something that, leaving aside, you know, Russian influence, just the fact that he has found that this is such an effective tool for his kind of politics. And if you're worried about the health of political conversation in particular, it's hard to point to anyone who's had a worse influence on the nature of our conversation there. So what is the argument for not banning Trump? Well, you're, you're right. He's been consistent in how he uses the platform from day one. I think he joined in 2009, maybe 2012. And uh, if you look back at all of his tweets, he's, he's been... Um, extremely consistent in how he uses the service, how he talks. And I think you find the same consistency in how he talks to the press and how he calls into shows like Fox and Friends. And yep. there's not significant gaps between or, or dissonance between those mediums that I've experienced. So I start this with a principle of I believe it's really important to understand how our global leaders think. And we're not going to like some of the things that they think and how they act. But I think it's important that we have a conversation about it. I think it's important that the conversation is on the same surface of where they're communicating. I believe it's important to see these in, in a permanent sense um, because it is a record of exactly who they are and how they act towards people. and how they view the world. And I think that's important to show any sort of meaningful progress and how far we've come or how little we've done based on, based on that record. So, you know, we, we do have a set of rules. We do enforce them on every account. We have an exception of newsworthiness and public interest. And we do believe that a lot of the things that um, people might assume 
Trump to have violated have a public interest aspect to them. And even if they didn't, it's out there and it's on, it's in the world. It's being broadcast and screenshotted and talked about on CNN. So having it on the same surface where people can interact with it and talk about it and retweet it and add their own opinion to me is really important. We will take action on violent threats against private individuals. Uh, we are in communication with all global leaders around the world and their offices uh, about anything that is close to the line or anything that we would consider crossing the line, but we, you know, we consider to be of public interest. And it's an open conversation, open dialogue, but I just, I don't think there's any going back from here. I, I think there's an expectation of our leaders being this on and 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 being uh, extremely expressive about what they're thinking about in the moment. And you're seeing this with AOC as well, and how she is mm. using the service and and what she's using it for. And you know, she's certainly provoking a ton of thought that some people agree with and and others violently disagree with, but. There's a lot of similarities in, in the patterns of how leaders are now using the surface. And it goes back to something you said earlier, which is it is a direct line to the people. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And ideally, we, we realize that there's no going back. So it's not shutting it down, but how do we improve this? How do we, how do we fix it? And mm -hmm. it might seem... Like there's a massive gap between now and, and doing that, but I'm a, I'm a believer. And uh, I, I, wanna, I wanna learn from all this rather than just shoot it away because we benefit from being a, a company that, that can do so if we wish. I, I, I think it's too important to miss this opportunity to understand how we can make our platform better and how we can see healthier contributions to a global conversation inclusive, inclusive of all of our global leaders, but more importantly, the discussion around them. That, that is what we're trying to protect, mm -hmm. is the discussion around them, to me, is just so critical. Again, I, I, it seems like, I just don't know how the terms of service can be squared with the, the, the disparate outcomes between someone like you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, who gets banned, and I think, I think he's got a lifetime ban, I don't think it's just a, a suspension, and Trump, who because of this, this newsworthiness framing can do, you know, I think, inarguably much worse things in the world in terms of just shining the light of his attention on people in ways that disrupt their lives. It strikes me that the newsworthiness is the wrong framing because it's not just, it's not just a window onto his thinking. Twitter is a tool he uses for a purpose, right? So it's like, like he might be thinking these thoughts in the privacy of his own mind <clears throat> anyway, but they wouldn't have the effect but for the fact that he, he's got this tool. And you might think, well, then he would jump to Facebook or some other platform and use that in the same way. I think that's highly debatable. Everything we're saying about why Twitter is so unique makes it uniquely powerful for him as this kind of tool. So... It's not. It only becomes newsworthy because he's on Twitter in the first place, right? It's not. It's, it's the fact that he's able to talk directly to this many people and go around the media. He has no. 
he doesn't have to hold a press conference to get his his thoughts out because he he can just talk to whatever it is, 60 million people. I mean, just it's interesting to consider what the world would look like and what Twitter's influence would look like if there were a clear violation of your terms of service, which I got to think there has been, and you just clipped him and had a, an explanation for why it was just untenable to have the leader of the free world behaving this way on your platform. I think that the day after that would be nothing if not interesting for Twitter. <laughs> It would be interesting, but I, I, I mean, first, I have seen and heard exactly the same language used on Twitter as I see and hear in the press conferences, to the point where we've we've had people bring up quotes by him and say that he tweeted this when, in fact, he said it on camera in front of a press press right. conference. Like people have. Like the the message is so consistent, and the tone and the approach is so consistent. The medium doesn't doesn't matter, and I I would just rather these things be in the open than in the dark. I I I I wouldn't want these thoughts to be in the dark of someone's mind, especially a global leader of of a role like that that has a potential for so much so much impact. I would rather see them as they happen, have a conversation about it address it in whatever ways that we can and mm. and move on and um just to speak to your your point on milo as well if you just look at the surface level of the output of uh what one account does versus another then your critique i think makes perfect sense but a lot of our our actions and and uh even in this in this particular case is because is is done because we're looking at the network. We're looking at all the other accounts that they're associated with as well, and the actions that they're taking—not necessarily what they're saying, but the actions that they're taking, which are against our terms of service. So you mean there's there's collaboration among accounts that signing up for multiple accounts, using um, phone numbers to create multiple accounts to harass people into silence, being banned on one account, starting up in a different account with a different name, ban evasion. Mm -hmm. Like you know, there's a whole series of sophisticated actions that people have taken on to avoid our terms of service, which we can see and mm -hmm. we take action on. And it has very little to do in the moment of what they're saying on the surface. So there, there's always something underneath. And that's not, we shouldn't be making people like wonder like what happened, like this tweet looks innocuous, but we should, we should be a lot more transparent about the why behind it. And, and we're, just, we're just not there yet. Well, I didn't actually think I was going to get you to ban the president of the United States in this interview. <laughs> so, has anything ever happened on Twitter that has made you either rethink the platform or just w worry about whether the, the whole enterprise was was doomed? And what's the wor what's the worst thing that has happened on Twitter that that kept you up at night? I mean, every example of doxing and violent threats keep me up. Twitter's been so powerful for marginalized communities, any attacks against them that end up having off-platform ramifications keep me up at night. I, mm. I want us to take a lot more responsibility thinking off-platform. I, I think we've been too insular in, in thinking about what happens on Twitter, but ultimately, even in misinformation and determining you know, what, what is real versus what is made up with an intent to deceive, scoping that problem down to where is content 
directly intending to mislead people into off-platform actions. That is the scariest thing to me. And that right. is the thing that I want to make sure we make the most progress on. We, we saw an example of this in 2016 with voter suppression. Someone tweeted an image that had a, a phone number that you could text to register to vote. It turns out when you texted that, you weren't registered to vote. So right. people walked away from that text thinking that they were registered to vote. What was interesting about that was that the, a lot of the journalists on our service and a lot of people who are watching out for these things immediately pointed out as misleading. And the number of impressions that the people who pointed out their tweets got versus the original tweet was 10x higher. So the wisdom of the crowds worked, but that is not something that we can rely upon. We need to act much, much faster on that. So those are the moments that it's basically the, the realization and our responsibility and off-platform ramifications that I really want to focus on. And that's why it's important, back to you know, what we were talking about earlier, we, we, need to, we need to identify the actual people using our service and we need to optimize our product and our policies around their physical safety. It has to be that severe, right. and that's not an easy problem, and it's not something that we were thinking about, obviously, when we started the service. We didn't have to. We didn't have the scale. We didn't see the things that happen at scale and the things that people, that, that people do with the service when you're at scale and all the unpredictableness that, that, in, that ensues. So right now, scoping our work to an individual's physical safety feels like the right focus. And that comes with it a bunch of ramifications that touch our policies, that touch our algorithms, that touch our, our product. Just doxing alone has got to be such a major issue. Yeah. And, and also, you know, is a contrast to free speech. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how, how, how do you weigh privacy concerns with someone's right to speak freely? And if you view it through a lens of someone's physical safety, it becomes an easy answer. But I, I think there's another dimension which you, which you mentioned, which is private individual versus a public figure. There are some private individuals who never intend to be public figures, but end up being public figures. But mm -hmm. there are others that intend to be public figures, and that comes with it a different circumstance and different expectations around how the view how, how the world views you and how the world interacts with you. And I, I think we need to think deeply about that spectrum as, as well. Well, so there's a, there's a natural bridge between the controversial issues we've been talking about and the practice of meditation, because <laughs> you did a retreat in Myanmar. You did a, this was your first 10 day retreat? Second. Second 10 day Vipassana retreat. Uh, my first one I did in Texas, uh -huh. just south of Dallas. Okay. Well, there were probably <laughs> fewer parasites in the food in Texas. One hopes. And then you got a lot of pushback on Twitter in your at mentions. It was like, it was like, there was some controversy there. So let's, let's just tell me first, uh, how was the retreat in Myanmar and why was it controversial for you to be talking about it on, on your platform? Well, I, just some context. I've been meditating for 20 years, but it, it was last year that I did my first Vipassana 10-day retreat. And mm. I, I, really got, I really got serious about it. And I, f I fell in love with the practice and the discipline and 
the experience I had and I committed to doing it every year. And uh, I'll probably do one more 10 day and then I'll try to go for 20 and 30. It helps me a lot and I get a lot out of it. And one of the things I learned after my first practice was just how much, how much some of the original teachings and the physical practice of Vipassana was kept pure in the tradition within Burma and Myanmar. Hmm. So I wanted to visit directly. I wanted to experience that directly. And I wanted something that was less conditioned than what I experienced in Texas. So I wanted to change the entire environment around me, but also go to the place where this teacher, Goenka, hails from and um, where he practiced and where, where he taught. Um, so had you been, have you been doing Goenka style Vipassana for 20 years? Is that how no, you started? No, 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 no. I, you know, before last year, the, the, the most I sat for a meditation was 45 minutes and it was, mm. it was picking various disciplines and doing what I, I, you know, I tried TM and I, I tried just straight mindfulness and, um, I was all over the place, but Vipassana at least gave me a framework of discipline that I, that really resonated with me. So went to Myanmar with a teacher, uh, my, my actual teacher in Texas. And mm. it was, uh, I was, I was there for the 10 day retreat. I had uh, two days outside of it within, uh, Myanmar and Burma to explore. And, um, the, the meditation experience, I, I went into silence on my birthday and I got out 10 days later and the meditation experience was amazing. Uh, and I, I, I had some subtle breakthroughs that were meaningful to me. And um, my first 10 day, I, I had one tweet, which was that I just finished it and um, I, I was just feeling at peace. I wasn't really ready to talk about it. After the second one, I felt I was ready to talk more about it and just share my experience. And that was my intention. I was, I, I wanted to, I wanted to, th I wanted to have a thread around my meditation experience not necessarily in Burma, but my my second one. But no, no good intention goes unpunished. <laughs> I, you know, I I did not bring in the surrounding context of everything that was happening in in Myanmar and Burma, hmm. and that was a miss. So I didn't meet with anyone in the government. I didn't meet with anyone in the activist community within Burma. I met with a lot of monks. I was deeply surprised that almost every single one of them was carrying a cell phone. The internet in Burma is equivalent to Facebook. There's no website URLs. It's just Facebook accounts. Hmm. And I was blown away by the kindness of, of the people. And I didn't dig deep into everything else happening within, within the country. To me, it, it wasn't time for that. I was going for a very specific purpose, not representing Twitter or, or, or Square or, or my, my you know, responsibilities, but going to meet the responsibility I have to myself to, to health and going down uh, the curiosity I had around where this teaching um, was, was, kept, uh, was kept pure. Well, it's, it's natural that you could think you could do just that. I mean, it seems like you, don't have, you shouldn't have to carry around the baggage of your CEO role uh, on the global stage 
into a meditation retreat, and you should be able to just talk about the meditation retreat without it blowing up into some geopolitical crisis. Was I, I didn't actually follow the thread closely. Was, there, was it all just around the fact that you hadn't acknowledged the, the atrocities against the Rohingya? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess it's easier to do it in Texas then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, but I, I don't want that to be, you know, an excuse. I, I, one of the things I did come across with the people I did talk to in Burma and Myanmar is they are only seen by the world in one dimension. And mm -hmm. that one dimension limits people from even visiting in the first place. Right. And I understand that, but there are so many other dimensions to the people and to the country that are just not being talked about. And other atrocities happening within the country that are not being talked about as well. And if we can't experience that, if I can't experience that directly, I don't know how else to learn about it and how else to acknowledge it and how else to add whatever way I can to fix it. And some some good things have come out of uh, that conversation. I had a woman reach out to me who gave me a list of all the activist organizations within Burma, Burma, Myanmar, to have a conversation with. We've, uh, you know, as a as a company, looked deeply around our policies to to make sure that we are we're doing the right thing and we're we're approaching the the environment in the right way. To be to be frank, we we don't have a lot of usage there. It is dominant Facebook, mm. um, but. That is not an excuse. We need to make sure that we're, we're, uh, you know, I think the biggest issue there right now is misinformation on social platforms like ours. Mm -hmm. So making sure we're prioritizing that work and, and that it fits with, uh, with what people are experiencing there and, and what needs to change. So how does your own meditation practice and, <clears throat> and your own desire to pay attention to things that are more and more intrinsically rewarding square with your personal use of Twitter as a platform? Because I, I can only imagine that there was, a, there was a fairly stark opposition between how you felt about the project of having just set a 10-day retreat and what was coming back at you on the platform. And I, you know, so I, I, you know, many of us experience this in miniature every day where, and I'm just speaking personally, I mean, this is back to my love-hate relationship with, with Twitter. I've reduced my use of it by maybe 95%. And I mean, the, the, the remaining 5% actually seems like it's mission critical for me just to be informed. I mean, it's like it's a, it's a major source of news for me. It's a publishing channel for me. I don't see getting rid of it, but the difference in my psychological health by reducing, I mean, there's a few things I did. One is I just stopped looking at what was coming back at me. I stopped looking at my ad mentions. That's a way of, in some way, nullifying what much that is good about the platform, too, because you're, you're losing a lot. But given the nature of the, the kinds of topics I touch, I felt like it was giving me a, an unrealistically negative picture of the rest of humanity. I mean, basically, I, was in, I was just, had, had a channel in my phone that was always offering me the opportunity to spectate on the road rage of the rest of, of the <clears> world. <throat> and... I would love a platform that, and again, this, this could just require magic. It may not be possible, but you know, if you could realize your goals of healthy conversation, you know, that, that, would be, uh, that would be fantastic. But given the way Twitter is, how do you 
just curate the the contents of your own consciousness and and use it and walk away from it and relate to it. I, I it starts with a uh, it starts with intent. I mean, I I first first and foremost, I want to experience all of it because I want to fix us. I, I need to right. experience yeah, all this. Of is, it. This is actually your day job, or this at least is, one of them. This is my job, and yeah. if if I'm not experiencing it directly and and going through all my mentions and everyone giving me critiques or threats or all these things, I'm I'm not going to be able to have empathy for what everyone else on the platform is experiencing. And I probably get some, you know, small degree of it compared to um, women on our platform, for instance, right. and marginalized communities on our platform. So it's something that I, I intentfully want to experience every single day. So my mindset already expects what I see, which I think takes a lot of the edge off and mm. takes off my desire or my natural behavior to react to it, to try to find some patterns that I might be able to learn from and, and fix. But ultimately, like I said, I, I want to get to a world where people are walking away from Twitter feeling like they learned something new and learn something new that benefits them. And I don't believe that the way to do that is necessarily to shut all the things that we don't like down. I also think it's folly because I believe the technologies that exist today, like blockchain and evolutions of blockchain, paint towards a future where all content will exist forever. It mm. doesn't matter what it is, it will exist forever without any sort of centralized control or censorship or whatnot. And as someone who's been on the internet for, for most of my life, that excites me. But it also puts a, a question as in terms of what our role is in Twitter. And I think our role is that we, you know, we need to focus a lot on what we recommend, what we amplify, and that we are guiding people towards healthier contribution. And that the definition of healthy is clear, but we also know that not everyone's going to choose health. And that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, we can't force these decisions upon people. We want to show why healthy contribution to a global public conversation is important. And 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 to me, this is my life's work. This is critical. I, I you know, the, there's so many global conversations that we're not having because of what we're seeing today in nationalism and tribalism and focusing on very specific communities or or neighborhoods, like climate change, like the rise the rise of AI, like mm. economic disparity. No one nation state is going to solve these problems. It it, it has to be a global conversation. So if we can't do this work, I, I fear for our fate in society. And, and Twitter won't be the ultimate answer, but we will certainly do our best to, to help it. Yeah, well, if you can fix that, that will be uh, quite a contribution because I am convinced that conversation is the answer to all of these problems. I mean, conversation is the tool we use to get 7 billion strangers to collaborate on these projects. Are you constrained by the local laws in individual countries? I mean, if there's whatever, a blasphemy law in Pakistan, are you filtering against their requests for that information? And how do you, how do you square that with a desire to improve a global conversation about something like human rights? We, we have um, something called per country takedown. Mm -hmm. So if we have local laws that don't allow for particular behaviors or content types, we can remove it from view from that particular country. Mm -hmm. but it's still available around the world to right. be seen. Have and you thought about not 
playing that game? And what would be the consequences of just saying, listen, we have a, we at Twitter have a clear sense of what human beings should be able to say. And we understand that not every country may be comfortable with that, but this is the platform. It, me- it means countries shutting us down, turning off the, the connection within right. the market and firewalling us like China has. Um, right. So, so, you're, so you're not in China at all? It's we're not in China. We're not in Iran. Uh, even though the leadership of Iran uses this quite heavily, the people mm. don't have access to it. Now, now, are you not in China because you didn't do something they wanted you to do, or they just decided you, were, you we were, couldn't be controlled enough to be a safe playmate in the future? Well, they started by blocking us. And I don't know the, the reasoning, but uh, we, uh, we, we have not um, had a opportunity to um, re-engage with that. So mm-hmm. um, I don't, I'm sure there are things we can do, but that is where we would, we would draw the line because we've seen, we do have a lot of dissidents within China using Twitter and a lot of dissidents around the world who are circumnavigating through VPNs and, and, and going around to see what's available. We think that's important, mm-hmm. but there are, you know, it, for whatever reason China did block us, I can't imagine us being comfortable with the conditions that they would allow us. Listen, Jack, it's been a real pleasure to finally sit down and talk to you. Thank you. I'm rooting for you in a way that I'm, I'm rooting for a few others, because I really do think that if you get Twitter right, you will have done immense good in the world, because we're completely in agreement that healthy conversation is just the master variable for human progress. So, and, and keep me up to date on your percentage of hate towards Twitter and we'll, yeah, okay. we'll make sure yeah. it goes down. Yeah, give me a button. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Sam. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.